Hola, Gary. Bom dia. <laughs> Bom dia, Ivan. Buenos dias. Yeah. Como vai? É, tá tudo bem comigo. É você. Tudo, tudo bem. Yeah, yeah, tudo bem. Beleza. How, uh, what, what, uh, what languages do you speak, Gary? How many languages do you speak? Uh, well, I speak Portuguese, uh, but Brazilian Portuguese, yeah. which causes me problems living here uh -huh. in Lisbon, where they speak a kind of Russian. <laughs> And I <laughs> yeah. understand French, Spanish, uh, Italian. Mm -hmm. Um, but mm -hmm. so I can read French, Spanish, Italian, but um, I'm a bit rusty from, um, you know, actually speaking. But the the Latin languages that are yeah. quite similar to Portuguese. But Portuguese is my main yeah, language wonderful. because I, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. But, uh, where where are you from? Um, I'm originally from England. I spent most of my life mm -hmm. living in London. Uh, yeah, okay. a little bit wonderful. of time in Italy uh, some time ago, and then I I lived in. In Brazil for a few years in the 90s. Yeah, that's wonderful. So yeah, this is kind of an international podcast. So thank you so much for for being part of the show, Gary. I'm, I'm honored to have you on the show. Uh, thank thanks for inviting me, Ivan. It's, uh, it's always, yeah. So one of the things that's really interesting about the new way of being able to produce and distribute music is that the fans are everywhere in the world, and that's really this is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, people people like to talk on the internet, and uh, I actually found out about your music on Instagram, uh, thanks to right. advertising, Instagram advertising, Instagram Instagram ads. They are making my my life easier, my job easier, and I uh, your video to your song, yeah, Shangri La, really caught my attention. It was a wonderful yeah. video. Well, that's good because we have to, as, as, as musicians, I have this conversation a lot with other musicians and I think maybe mm -hmm. because I, I spent many years outside the music industry, I, I was in the music yeah. business years ago, but spent many years outside of, of it. So it, maybe I have a slightly different perspective, but I, I really think there's so many opportunities now to reach fans, but you have to be prepared to to physically reach them because nobody can find you otherwise so the, the instagram stories uh was it's been really successful for me a really good way of reaching new fans yeah. and yeah. and people in different countries yeah yeah totally and then i i went to your Bandcamp page and uh i was listening to your album and uh i thought this is this is great so i just i just wanted to say uh I'm, I'm I'm very happy. I'm glad that you have decided to put out your first record, your first album last year. It's a really outstanding album. I think everybody sure should go and listen to it right now. Um, I, I was wondering, it took you like 25 years to release this first album, Gods in Brazil. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. Is, uh, well, actually, probably a bit longer. If I'm probably yeah wow yeah. yeah so the first question that came to my mind was just why you know why did it take you so long to say like yes let's do it okay well I think you know it's difficult for people who've grown up in the internet era where access mm -hmm. to information and like-minded people is really really it's like a click away you know. If somebody yeah. gives you the name of an artist today, you go online and within 10 seconds, you have the whole catalog, YouTube, Spotify, these kinds of things. Um, exactly. So back in, you know, back in the uh, 80s, well, when I was a kid, I was really into music. And um, mm -hmm. I had a band at school and um, we, you know, we played some gigs locally and things like that. And I was obsessed with music, but it was yeah. very hard to like nobody knew how to get into the music industry nobody really knew how it worked and uh, if you mm -hmm. if you didn't have connections it was almost impossible to you know there wasn't there wasn't even a book how to do it how to be a musician how to be a, a, yeah. an artist how to set up a record label this kind of stuff so i think yeah. for many years i didn't think it was possible to do it and i worked in the music industry around music for a long long time and always a little bit kind of jealous of my friends that were making music because i really wanted to do it but uh, i don't think i had mm -hmm. the confidence at the time 
And in the yeah. early 90s, about 1993, I started to really write songs and I was already like obsessed with Brazilian music for many years. And mm -hmm. I wanted to write songs in the kind of style of the music I was listening to, like classic Brazilian 60s, 70s stuff. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I started to do that and make some demos on, uh, I had a little Tascam four track recorder, you know, with cassettes and I would make some demos. Mm -hmm. And then I had the opportunity to, to move to Rio and was involved in a music technology business. It was the th world's first ever digital download distribution system. And I went mm -hmm. to Rio really to do that, but to kind of be a musician, except when I got there, all these kids were so amazing musicians and i was like oh my god i can't compete with these guys they're like you know i remember going to a friend's house and he said oh i don't like the beatles and then played three beatles songs on the guitar perfectly and i thought <laughs> okay this is there's too much competition in this country and so i carried on working in the music business for a long time but writing mm -hmm. songs and making demos but really i didn't show them to anybody else except my my friend my flatmate Cassine would hear me doing this or hear me playing guitar yeah. in my in my bedroom and mm -hmm. would say oh you should do something and i was no no yeah no it's not you know it's not it's not very good it's not good <laughs> enough for me yeah. and i think what i didn't realize back then was that you if you can write songs it doesn't matter if you can play them very well you can always find people to help you and many years later i discovered that mm -hmm. irving berlin the famous broadway composer couldn't read and write music he hired a guy with a piano and mm -hmm. he would whistle to the guy and the guy would write the mm -hmm. write the music down and i thought oh my god but this is the kind of thing that in the internet you can find in seconds this kind of information but you know back then in the yeah. early 90s yeah it was uh, it was it was difficult you you everything was much more slow you know if you wanted to learn something you really had to had to try and, and find someone who could teach you or show you help you spend a lot of time mm -hmm. yeah so those over those 25 years i saw i had a record label yeah. um uh, back in england called what music and we reissued a lot of rare brazilian and latin jazz jazz from argentina some jazz from finland mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then i left the music mm -hmm. industry i got a bit disillusioned with it um a lot that you know with the business mm -hmm. side of things and for many years um you know, I would keep in touch with Cassine and his career was getting stronger and stronger in Brazil, as a, mainly as a producer, but also as an artist. Mm -hmm. And he would say, oh, yeah. what about your album? And I'd say, yeah, well, may uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. And then in 2018, <laughs> he came to London to play one show um, with uh, another guy that I already knew, Alberto Continentino, who used to play with Ed Motta when, when we released uh, Ed's album oh, in yeah. 2003. And... The other two guys mm -hmm. were from Poland. And I thought, wow, this is really crazy. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? And after the gig, which was really fantastic, one of the best shows I ever saw, and Cassine said to me when he was packing up uh, all the instruments, oh, what about your album? And I just said, yes, uh, yes, let's do it. And I think he was really surprised. And I don't think he thought it was ever going to happen. But um, <laughs> yeah, so we, so, so we did it. And uh, it's been life-changing, really. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, fascinating. Such a great story. And uh, I was a little bit confused because I was reading the, the your, your video description on YouTube. And it says produced by Kasim Ting Maya. At first, I thought it was the Ting Maya. The, I mean, the, the you know, the... Ah, uh, no, no, because, yeah, because... Father of Soul. <laughs> yeah, no, because it's, um, uh, it's just, I think, a list of the people that Kasim has worked with. Uh, Cassine ah, produced okay. the Tim Meyer Hashanal Volume Three. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of Tim Meyer, so I was. Well, yeah. I, was I met him once, Ivan. You, you met him? Yeah, I spent oh. I spent like uh, four or five hours in a dressing room in the early hours <laughs> of the morning with him <laughs> and an English friend, and and he was telling the most <laughs> crazy stories. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you live in, in, in Brazil for, for how long? How long did you live? It was about four years, but I was traveling. Before that, I was traveling regularly because I, I started to go to Rio to buy records. And I would bring the records back to London. And, and uh, mm -hmm. a friend of mine who later uh, helped me set up the record label, 
he had lots of contacts as a record collector, a record dealer, and he would sell the mm-hmm. records on to Japanese DJs. And that's how I paid mm-hmm. for my trips to, to Brazil for the, the early years of the 1990s. And, uh, wow. you know, in those days you could buy, you could buy Tim Meyer Hachanel for less than a dollar if you could find it. And the Japanese would pay, you know, five hundred dollars. So it was a it was an interesting business. <laughs> um, yeah, and there were other English guys doing the same thing as well at the time. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, uh-huh. buying, so we were in competition with each other. You know, we would go to these record stores and think, oh, I found a new record store, a new secondhand store. And we, I remember going to one, and the woman said, oh, we had a guy from England yesterday. He bought everything. <laughs> so it, it was like this kind of competition for finding rare records and taking them back to Europe and, uh, and yeah. you know, playing them. DJ friends would play them in London and, and then uh, they mm-hmm. get mostly get sold to Japan, just like today. To Japan? Yeah. Wow. Because the, what, the Japanese knew everything, you, you know. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I know. And uh, did you did you travel around South America or were you only? No, no. Mainly? Yeah, mainly. I, I guess I always had a bit of an obsession with the idea of Rio. And, and when I went yeah. there, I was really poor. So when I first moved there, I had no money at all. And the mm-hmm. day that I moved was the day that they started the Heal plan, where they, they made a new currency. The day before, it was mm-hmm. like, almost like 1 million cruzeros was about $5. (laughs) It was crazy. And then Mm -hmm. the next day, one heal was one US dollar and it was linked. And suddenly Mm -hmm. Brazil became incredibly expensive as a foreigner. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I I had to do some jobs. Like uh, I was a DJ in a Mexican restaurant with Cassim and this kind of thing. So at that time, um, you know, things were a real struggle. Uh, to be a, a foreign guy, not really legal, not really supposed to work. Uh, you know, the, the classic uh, thing with somebody immigrating. So I didn't even really have a lot of money to go traveling, and this kind of thing. So I was trying to set my music business up at the time in Rio. Yeah. And using all the money that I had to, to do that. Okay, I see. I, I understand now. And uh, where does your... Where does the love for Brazilian music come from? Like, when did you decide, okay, I want to go to Brazil and start collecting rare records? Okay, well, yeah, so there are two, two, two answers to that, really. The first one is that when I was a kid and uh, my mum used to listen to the radio, uh, BBC radio, but oh. not Radio 1, which okay. was the pop music. She would listen to Radio 2, which mm-hmm. was like for older people. So they would play yeah. stuff from the 60s already. Like this would be yeah. like mid-70s, early 70s. And mm-hmm. they would play Sergio Mendes and, uh, and Santana, mm-hmm. you know. And so it was always this kind of Latin thing that, that I found yeah. really attractive. And influence. Yeah, exactly. And that, as I got older, like when I sort of left home and was working in the mid-1980s, I was really into jazz, like totally into jazz. And I realized as well that mm-hmm. a lot of the jazz that I liked was a kind of bossa thing. Yeah. And one day I had a girlfriend... Um, and she said, oh, I bought you a cassette for your birthday. And it was Gilberto Gil, which was the first mm-hmm. kind of fully Brazilian, as opposed to Americans with some Brazilians on kind of recording that I heard. And it was very modern and I didn't like it so much, but there was a couple of tracks on there that made me want to find out more. And around that time, HMV opened a, a mega store in London and downstairs they had a basement with world music, as they called it then. And they had, mm-hmm. in that in 1985 to 87, all the major Brazilian record labels reissued classic albums, like almost everything, like all the Caetano, all the Gal Costa, all the Elis Regina, um, oh. Nana Kaimi. I mean, pretty much everything you could imagine. Um, yeah. And so I would buy these records because of the covers. Like, they just looked so exotic to me. And mm-hmm. buying, I would buy the records. I would look at the who wrote the songs. I would go back the next week and, Try it with a list of names and they're like, oh, Edu Lobo, this guy's really good. Okay, let me see if there's an album by Edu Lobo. And, yeah. you know, it was like the internet in massively slow motion. It, yeah. it took a long time to build up that knowledge. And I didn't realize that there was anybody else, you know, anywhere that was into this kind of music because there was no way of knowing that. You know? So I, yeah, I yeah. would make tapes and I would play them to my friends. And when I, when I was like in the eighties, I used to work in a friend's store in Soho and I would 
put the put my tapes on all day and people would ask what the music was and that's how we used to share share the information you know with mixtapes and um yeah so then i met a brazilian guy and his wife in london in 1990 and the, he was trying to get work in england and he was a photographer and he started to tell me about some of the things he was doing and he said oh you won't know any of my work i said oh well, tell me and he said oh, i did this album cover for caetano veloso and i did some for tim meyer and i said yeah i have both of those albums and he was like wow that's crazy how, how did you get them in england you know in those days yeah. and so we became friends and uh, a, a guy that I was working with at the time as well, we decided let's go to Rio for Carnival in, in 1991. So for January, February 91, mm-hmm. we went for five weeks, I think, and stayed with this friend Flavio. And he knew just about everybody in Rio. So all these guys that um, oh. that I had records from, we would meet and mm-hmm. they would be just like, how come there's these crazy English guys that listen to our music mm-hmm. because the world was a smaller place in those days, a bigger place oh, rather in those days. Yeah, yeah, you, so, you were definitely pioneering that kind of. Well, so we used to go and buy the records, Ivan. We'd go down to the, the down in the city center in Rio. There'd be the guys selling secondhand records, literally on the street, and we'd just mm-hmm. buy the stuff that we liked. And then one day, a friend of mine, when I went back to England with a bunch of records, a friend of mine who was into Brazilian music, who who came into my, the store where I worked and heard the tape and. And that said, wow, whose music is this? You know, that's how we connected in those days. And mm-hmm. and he said, you're not going to believe this, but that Edo Lobo record is 50 pounds, like $75 then in Mr. Bongo's window in Soho. And I said, oh, well, I reckon I could probably find five or 10 copies of that. <laughs> so that's how I started. Uh, I didn't realize there were, there were other people. I didn't realize that there was this, you know, starting collector's cult- culture from some hip hop and and, uh, and and Latin jazz world in in London and other other cities as well. Um, mm-hmm. So it was almost by accident that I started to to deal in the records. But because I knew where to find them in Brazil, lots of people didn't. Um, so yeah. I would have friends give me lists. Japanese DJs would give them a list, and then I would go and I would go and deal with my record dealers on the street. And I mean, it really was like that on the street, you know, and I would go there and say, I'm coming back in three weeks time. You know, I'd send them a letter, write a letter by post, Ivan. Send them a letter and say, I'm going to be, I'll meet you on like the March the 20th, you know, at two o'clock outside the Teatro Municipal. And so we started to do an exchange of records where I would bring English folk rock, which is something I knew nothing about. They would give me a list of records and I would buy these really cheap (laughs) records in England that nobody wanted in those days carry them yeah. to Rio and swap them for like Jean Bonato and, uh, you know, uh-huh. this like uh, really kind of rare stuff, Moises Santos and all kinds of things. Yeah. 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 So it was <laughs> wow, really by accident. Neat. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So for our young listeners out there, that yes. was the way music was yes. exchanged in, in the, in the 90s. That's, that's amazing. That's incredible how things have changed. And uh, I think your story is pretty similar to the one of, uh, I don't know if you know uh, about Quantic, have you heard of him? It's uh, also a British DJ and uh, producer who, he went to Colombia, he lived there many years, and he he did pretty much the same, you know, like uh, collecting all the rare Colombian music yeah, records. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. And I, there were lots of people back then when I was doing it, definitely. And and I would mm-hmm. hear, if someone would say, oh, I, I met an English DJ who's here to buy records. You should meet. And in those days, we would, de- we would definitely like, uh, no, he's a competition, you know. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we, we never wanted to hear about other, other guys buying records. And it was like <laughs> lots of secrecy, you know. It was, yeah, yeah, it's funny. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah so um gods in brazil how did you come up with that name because i really like it it's a, it's a fantastic name for an album you're the first person to ask me that question ivan which i think is extraordinary oh really nice yeah i think it's extraordinary because i think the name needs an explanation right because it makes no sense well uh there was a song called gods in brazil that was supposed to be on the album but it got cut uh, so that's one oh, answer okay. But the, the title mm-hmm. comes from that that first time when I went to Rio in 91 and I stayed with my friend Flavio. MTV mm-hmm. had just started in Brazil. Okay, It was like a Brazilian, mm-hmm. very Brazilian version of MTV. And most mm-hmm. of the stuff they were showing was old 
uh, American and British bands because they didn't have enough content to fill 24 hours of, of programming. So we would yeah. watch MTV and there would be things like Echo and the Bunny Men would come on. And we'd say, what? Yeah. Echo and the Bunny Men in Brazil? And Flavio would say, oh, yeah, they were gods in Brazil. And it was like every oh. band, every band that kind of would have been forgotten in England would come on MTV and he would say, oh, yeah, they were gods in Brazil. And so it became like a catchphrase for me and my friends, oh, like somebody could be a god in Brazil, you know. So yeah. when we came to, to do this record, it just seemed like a, a kind of t like a, a playful title, you know, maybe it's possible still to be a god in Brazil. Oh, okay, I got it. So it has to do a little bit with the with the Brazilian humor. <laughs> okay, so you went to Poland to record the the album. Why did you uh, decide to go there? I did, uh, yeah, um, yeah, and that was because um, the so when uh, so a few years ago, Cassine's uh, got a studio in Rio, and it's a it's above uh, a venue mm -hmm. called Audio Herbal audio rebel and mm -hmm. uh he would finish the studio normally about eight o'clock in the evening and there would always be a band starting and if there was an interesting band sometimes he would go and just check them out and see you know who they were and one day he told me he was closing up the studio and he heard this like crazy version of herbie hancock's rocket so he went mm -hmm. to see what it was and it was these two guys he didn't know were polish at the time these two foreign guys uh playing the whole of herbie hancock's rocket album so he stayed and watched it and afterwards he was introduced to uh to macho uh, the drummer and macho mm -hmm. said oh you're cassine i was i wanted to meet you someone told me that you were the guy i had to meet in rio so they started talking mm -hmm. about music and things and macho said that he had some connections with the polish uh, government for culture and they wanted mm -hmm. to do yep. some uh, brazilian polish cultural exchange and mm -hmm. would Cassim be interested in making an album? So they did that, and it's called uh, Mitch and Mitch, which is the Polish band, Mitch and Mitch uh, mm -hmm. and Cassim, and it's called Visitantis Nordestins, Visitors from the Northeast, mm -hmm. because Poland is northeast of Rio, right? And yeah. um, so it's a little pun there. So they made this album, and then Cassim was invited to Poland by Mitch and Mitch to participate in a festival uh, based on a legendary um, Polish musician called uh, Zbigniew Wodeski. And mm -hmm. uh, so they did a tour with uh, with Wodeski's music and Mitch and Mitch in Poland had, had recreated a lost album of his from the 70s and the, it had been really successful and, and in Poland went double platinum. And so they did these festivals and it went really, really well. And then another mm -hmm. friend of ours um, in, who's Brazilian but based in London got the band over to play one night in, in London when I was there. And mm -hmm. so Cassine had this band that was half Polish, two of the guys from Mitch and Mitch, Alberto Continentino from, from Rio and him. And yeah, I know him. Yeah. And mm -hmm. afterwards I met the Polish guys and they were like into the same things. And Macho had lived in Sao Paulo, not Rio, but around the same time, like it, like all of, all of us, he had a Brazilian girlfriend, bought records and took them home and played his friends, you know, same story. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we became friendly. So when Cassine said, what should we do with the record? Um, you know, how should we make it? At the time, and even now, but at the time, like two years ago, when, when we first talked about this, Brazil was incredibly expensive, uh, like crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we said, well, let's see, because Poland is one of the cheaper places in Europe, and is famous for yeah. having the orchestras and things like that. So we decided to go to the uh, Polish radio orchestra studios in Warsaw mm -hmm. and uh, Macho and, and Piotr, the pianist uh, on the record, they do a lot of work there. They do all kinds of recording, jazz and things. And they've got a really good relationship with the Polish radio, which is a state radio uh, station. And the studios are incredible. Mm -hmm. They're like a time warp. They're from the 1950s and 60s. And nice. So the cost of making it there with all these, you know, classical musicians and everything and the string sections and uh, this was probably, you know, like two thirds of making it in, in, in Brazil. And it just, I like the idea as well, uh, Ivan, that my version of Brazil is distorted, okay, because I'm British and my version of Brazil is from old mm -hmm. records and my romantic Im imagination. And 
to mm-hmm. meet these Polish guys who had another romantic version of Brazil that was also distorted. <laughs> yeah. I really liked that idea. But at the same time, you know, have Alberto and Cassim, who are real Brazilians, kind of managing this, the yeah. arrangements and the production at the same time. So I really liked the yeah, idea yeah. that it was kind of, that it made no sense <laughs> without, without knowing the background <laughs> story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Alberto Continentino, he, he's he's one of my favorites. Uh, I'm a bass player too, and uh, right, uh, I love him. I love. So the you know, you bass. know how unbelievably good he is, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you. Yeah. So um, let's listen to some music now. Um, you are going to hear Juanito Caminante, Little Johnny Walker, a wonderful song. I love it. You know, it's like the perfect song for your. Uh, morning coffee or your morning whiskey if you want <laughs> yeah it's just a perfect little tune for sunny days it's going to make you feel happy so enjoy it and uh, stick around we will be back in a minute
Okay, uh, what a what a wonderful song there. Um, so, an international band, you recorded your album in Poland. What a great experience. So, how long did it actually take you to record the whole album? How was the, the whole um, recording process? Okay, so we had... So, there was an element, okay, where... I, I I was I'd sent the demos to the guys and Macho co-produced because there was a lot of work in, in Poland, you know, organizing musicians and the studios and yeah. accommodation and all those kinds of things. And so I'd sent the my demos to Macho and to Kasim, and like right up until the day before we were due to go to to Warsaw, uh, I hadn't had any conversation with the guys about whether the songs were any good or which songs out of the 20 or so that I'd submitted to them that they wanted to do. And I was a little bit petrified. And so when we got there, we had five days of rehearsal in Macho's studio in his house. And mm. I never did this before, right? So I didn't know the process. And I, I joked with Kasim recently that, um, that this was kind of like, uh, for them, it was a day in the office. But for me, it was a really big, really big deal, you know making my yeah. first album i didn't yeah. really i never sung before um i didn't know really what the process was other than just a visitor to studios over the years um mm -hmm. so we went through all, each of the songs that we'd chosen so we literally chose them uh, in one morning like out of the 20 let's listen yeah next one yeah next one okay yeah let's do this one this one this one <laughs> and that's where <laughs> gods in brazil's song got cut at that stage and um so we did the rehearsals for each of them. We recorded those. Uh, and I had a friend uh, from England come over as well, uh, Adam Askew, who was at the time still one of the senior uh, engineers, sound engineers at the BBC radio. And so uh, he came also a week before to kind of uh, to meet the guys and hear the sound and everything. And he was he was going to be the guy recording and, you know, microphone placement and engineering the session, etc. So it was really kind of everyone getting to know each other. And um, mm -hmm. that was just a really good process. So we'd done that. And then Kasim had a gig on a Sunday night in Warsaw at a, a really cool venue called Poglos uh, with the same mm -hmm. band, Alberto and Machu and Piotr and, uh, um, and Milos, who's a percussionist with Mitch and Mitch and is also one of the directors of the Chopin Conservatory in Warsaw. He's an incredible, mm -hmm. incredible percussionist. So they, those well, guys had a gig. And then Kasim said, right, we're going to do two of your songs at the end of the show. You're going to have to stand up and sing them. And uh, Ivan, that was probably the scariest thing I ever did in my life. <laughs> stand up in front of 300 people, you know, after Kasim's gig, not, not before, after. And, oh, uh, gosh. So that, that, because I was so nervous about that, it, it completely removed any nerves that I had about going into the studio, which was a, a good tactic of his, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So... We went into the studio, and then the first song we did was uh, Adam for the Jubalansu, which is named after this friend, Adam Askew. His name means Adam uh, off balance in English. Askew means out, out of balance. And mm -hmm. so we did that first song, and I didn't really kind of understand what the process was, you know. So I was singing guide vocals, and the band was all recorded live. Um, and I, it just was just, uh, it was overwhelming. I think several times during that week when we were recording those songs, um, you know, I kind of burst into tears because I couldn't quite believe that I was actually doing this after all these years. Mm -hmm. It was a, definitely a like super yeah. emotional experience. But even at that stage, Van, I didn't know what I was going to do with the record. Okay, so at one point yeah. we were nearly finished the recording of that week and it was sounding really good. And Cassine mm -hmm. said to me, so what are you going to do with the album to release it? And I said, oh, I don't know. Maybe like I'll make a hundred copies and sell it on Bandcamp. And the guys all looked at me like, what? What do you mean we're doing all this work and that's all you're going to do? And because it hadn't really occurred to me that there, mm -hmm. there would be an audience for this. You know, I, a lot of mm -hmm. this really for me was like closing a chapter and 
taking all these songs that have been hanging around in, in my mind for you know many yeah. decades and actually mm-hmm. making something concrete from them. So as the album began to take shape, and then I went to Rio to do the vocals with Cassin and to record the horn sections and some overdubs. And mm-hmm. as I realized that actually it was starting to sound like somebody else's record, you know, in other words, like the, the, the level of quality and production was like a commercial record. I started to think a bit more about, you know, what to do with the release and things, but I had no idea for a cover. I didn't really have any plan strategy at that time. So it was a big <laughs> learning curve for me. And was I was completely mm-hmm. amazed at the reaction, you know, and, and that so many fans are like so young as well. I think my yeah. most of my fans are like eighteen to thirty-five, and I would have imagined when I started that they would have been, you know, my age, which is like I'm, I'm nearly fifty-five. Um, yeah, and it, but it shows that music just crosses all ages, all boundaries, and it's, uh, absolutely. It's that that was actually my. That was actually my next question. How how has been the reaction of people and critics to your album? Well, you know, because because it's a really weird situation, yeah. Because you know, the, the I'm with a band who, who within the you know within the niche music industry with Brazilian music and etc. And the guys in Poland, these guys yeah. are known. So part of the thing I think was curiosity, like why have these guys made an album with this guy no one had ever heard of, and. I thought that's probably the best kind of angle for pitching the record, you know. And I was yeah. really, really lucky that my friend, Juan Donato, uh, decided that he loved the some of the songs that I'd sent him and was playing them at home every day. And mm-hmm. he was playing in Lisbon and then playing in London. And Giles mm-hmm. Peterson at BBC was a huge fan of Donato. And I, I've known him not very well, but I've known him for many, many years since I had my record label. And so we went to the BBC studio for Donato to record some live sessions. And mm-hmm. Giles uh, heard my album. And so he got me on the radio with Donato talking about how I knew him and how we worked together years ago and this kind of stuff. And that really kickstarted everything, you know, because people were calling the BBC and saying, where's this album? We can't get it. Where's, where, where do I find this song? And because mm-hmm. I, I hadn't planned to re- release it for several more weeks, maybe another six weeks. So I had to bring the release forward like to that day <laughs> because people were, were trying to find the Juanito Caminante song. And mm-hmm. uh, so from there, really, it, it really kicked off. And then the other really big thing that happened was um, Andrew Jervis at Bandcamp, who's like the, the main music curator at Bandcamp. He was a fan mm-hmm. of my record label, What Music, many years ago. So oh. for him, it was an interesting story. So he put um, one of my songs as the first track on the Bandcamp Weekly podcast. And that just went kind of crazy. And from there, people started playing it on radio stations and things. And and um, and then the other really good source mm-hmm. of, of fans has been the wow. Instagram, the Instagram stories, which has kind of, you know, uh, shown my music to people that never would have seen it. And I never would have imagined yeah. that they, they were out there, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think also the music video, we, we talked a little bit about at the beginning of the podcast, mm-hmm. the, the music video for the song Shangri-La, is, it's just awesome, that, that vintage, uh, is it 50s, 40s? It's it's a mixture, Ivan, it's the 30s, 30s and 40s. And the reason that it is 40s. like that, yeah, is because, thank you, I, I, you know, I, I really, I made, it my, I made it myself and I really love doing that stuff. I've always been into, yeah. into that I kind love of, it. Yeah. Um, and the reason it's like that is because when I made that, Cassine said, but you're not in the video. And because just like the cover and just like what I was going to do with the release of the album, I hadn't really considered anything about like promo videos. So mm-hmm. I realized I had to have something for YouTube that wasn't just a picture of the album cover. And yeah. I remembered that the on archive.org, there's a lot of public domain material of old newsreels and things. And, um, um, Back in the, I don't know when, the, maybe in the 1980s, there was a big fashion for commercials in, in Britain, uh, where they would mm-hmm. take old footage and they would repurpose the footage for like a beer commercial or something. And mm-hmm. so I thought, let me see if I can find some interesting images that are, kind of match the theme of the of that song Shangri La. And I just found so much stuff that it was just like huge fun. 
and mm -hmm. I've been back to the same source uh, to make more video clips as well because it's just really fascinating to take really old uh, film material and yeah. re repurpose it with music and it takes on a different meaning. Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's really absolutely. fun to do that. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, and also the, the names of the songs are really cool, like Juanito Caminante little johnny walker yeah i had it back in the 90s i knew a brazilian guy who who he i can't remember the reason why but he he had to go to paraguay for the day for to yeah. do something with a visa and so he mm -hmm. took a bus and it's like an overnight bus and you get to the border and you have to mm -hmm. wait like i don't know 24 hours and then you could come back into the country and <laughs> Paraguay was famous in those days uh, for being the source of everything pirate and counterfeit, you know, like fake cigarettes okay. and fake Ray-Bans and everything you can imagine. Yeah, and yeah. Um, he said, oh, they had fake whiskey, fake Johnny Walker called Juanito Caminante. <laughs> and it stuck in my mind at the time. Yeah, and I wrote that yeah. song in about 1995. And yeah. I used to sing it in my office in, in Rio and drive my, I had some interns working with me and I used to drive them crazy. And 25 <laughs> years later, uh, one of them's living in New Jersey with a family and everything. And I, I just didn't say anything. And I just sent him a video clip in the studio of Juanito Caminante being made into an actual record. And yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. He was like, no, <laughs> it's so, it's too catchy. I don't, I don't want to ever hear it again. <laughs> so it comes from from the Brazilian humor. Yes. It's also, I I, totally. I, had, I lived I lived in Germany for around twelve years, and uh -huh. I, I had I had a few friends from Brazil, and we were always laughing because they are, you know, they have this, this sort of humor where they, no matter what you say, they find something funny to say. Yes. <laughs> and I think the British have that as well. Um, you know, the, I think the, yeah. the British humor, like Monty Python, and, and laughing at things. Oh, that, Monty Python. Yeah. Words, yeah yeah and, and yeah, yeah. monty python's really big in brazil right so like um when i was living yeah, there in the really. 90s my friends would all have uh, vhs videos of monty python in those days mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so there's a definitely <laughs> similar humor yeah definitely yeah yeah so how do you feel now after you have released your album i mean we we had the the pandemic we are Still, are you also quarantining yes over there in yes it, it's yeah. officially it's been relaxed in portugal but yeah. Yeah. it's like uh, i when people ask me if i'm ready to go out it's i say you know when apple releases a new ios for the phone and you really don't want to be the first one to download it in case <laughs> in case your phone dies well uh, yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm staying in quarantine for a, a bit longer until we see what happens because already there's been a spike yeah. in uh, in covid uh, cases since the the, the the relaxation is very light you know it's not it's not mm. completely open but it's already it's already looking a bit scary um, and mm -hmm. it's it's i mean i work at home anyway so part of it is not so strange for me like compared to friends who you know go to an office and things where their their lives have been really changed a lot or they have their kids at home or something so that side of it hasn't changed a lot yeah. for me but um uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's a weird one. We we did we did nine songs because you know I've got a, a new album that I've been working on. Um, mm -hmm. Twenty five years for the first one, and like six months between the first one and the second one being recorded. Um, so we did nine songs in Lisbon with the same band, uh, and my friend Domenico Lancelotti as well, who's the voice on Juanito Caminante with the, the whiskey seller. Uh, he's living in mm -hmm. Lisbon, so uh, it was great to get him in, on the album as well this time, playing percussion and drums. And um, we did nine songs in three days. So we compressed the whole experience of last time was compressed into three, three days. And when the lockdown started, we said, oh, let's maybe do one more song. So I wrote a song on the day of lockdown that started that came into my head like in one go. I made a demo and I sent it to Cassim and he fixed it up and sent sent the parts to Macho in Warsaw and he played the drums yeah. and then it went to Alberto in, in outside Rio where he was with his family and he did the bass and then it went back to Cassine in Rio and he did some crazy guitar and then it went to back to Warsaw to uh, Pedrinho as we call him, Piotr, the keyboard player, then back to Lisbon mm -hmm. to me to do the vocals. And it was the first time we, we've done a track like that where it wasn't the whole band in the studio. 
but um, it's really good. So now, now that the album has ten songs instead of the, instead of nine, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, Gary, it's uh, it's been so nice talking to you. We've been talking for over over forty minutes now. Yeah, no, he can't stop me on this subject, though, Ivan. We could go on for two hours easily. <laughs> yeah, I, I love to talk about music. Is there anything else you want the world to know about uh, about your music, about uh, Gary? Yeah, I think one thing that I would say is like it's never too late. Um, you know, there's a song yeah. on the first album, "Follow Your Heart," which is kind of about that, um, and that it, mm-hmm. it is more so now than ever before. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. Or how old you are, or, or anything. If you if you've got something creative to, to say, there's you should just do it because now there are there are opportunities to reach people and fans in a way that never existed. You know, 25 years ago, for example. Um, so I would just say, you mm-hmm. know, whatever you feel yeah. that you should be doing, just just do it. Yeah, I I totally agree with you, and I I think it's so nice what you are saying and. Uh, I think this episode is going to be so special because it, it will show the people, like, you know, how was life before the internet, you know, how was music produced and consumed before and after the internet. So I love talking about these kinds of things. So thank you so much, Gary. So where can we get your music? Where can people get your music? Okay, so uh, just my name, if you put my name, Gary Corbin, uh, C-O-R-B-E-N, into Google, there's a whole bunch of stuff that will come up there. Uh, Spotify. Everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And and all all the digital platforms. Gary Corbin, right? Yeah, exactly. And Instagram is really good. I'm on Facebook, but I I have to say Instagram is really good because lots of interaction. And I always, every, every fan, if I can, I may have missed a few, but nearly every person that follows me on Instagram, I say hi to and 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 start a conversation because it's <laughs> okay. such a good way of yeah, engaging with great. people. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. Instagram that. for this for this day and age is is a really good tool to communicate. Um, exactly. Okay, Gary. So thank you very much for being part of the podcast. Um, oh, thank you for inviting me, Ivan. It's you know it's always a pleasure yeah, to really nice to chat. talk about music. Um, and... I'm going to sleep now because you know I'm I'm here in Ecuador. I live in the in the Amazonian rainforest. Yeah. What time is it there? Three a.m. in the morning. It's always ah, three. God. Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate you sorting setting the time. For, I'm always best. At, I, I'm a morning person. Definitely, I'm always best in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. I, I slept a couple of hours before. <laughs> Yeah, but it's okay. I I slept a couple of hours before before the show, so I'm, I'm fit now. And uh, but Perfect. it's time to go to bed too. So <laughs> you will find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere you can find podcasts. So subscribe if you like it. And thank you so much, Gary. Thank you, Ivan. Thank you so much, Gary. Um, talk to you soon. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye.
right in my puma girl I'll see you there in Prada Junior I'll take you for a ride in my puma girl I'm gonna show you now I'm not just a crooner A puma may not be a Lamborghini girl But you're so sexy and do possante é mais um sonho de encontrar essa mulher esfuziante é o champanhe a cada gole me faz a sua lembrança esfumaçar e eu acelero passando pela praia o vento no meu rosto olho para o meu retrovisor vejo a garota dos meus sonhos a me chamar acelera o meu puma que mais parece um corcel um leão deixando rastros pelo chão a cada esquina a espreta ela está Não consigo te encontrar Mas o coração já está no para-choque para chegar antes A meia-noite no compasso do meu peito Com cada explosão dos fogos De alegria no céu Eu sinto como uma valsa entre a multidão Eu, você e nós dois É meu Puma 72 If you want to ride in my Puma girl I'll see you there In Prado Junior You're so sexy in your bikini girl